Exodus 20, starting at, uh, at the beginning of Exodus 20, on page 73 in the Church Bibles. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do, your, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your manservant or maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land of the Lord that the Lord God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. The second reading tonight comes from Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17, and can be found on page 959 of the Church Bibles. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have, until you have paid the last penny. 
Well, Sean mentioned I'll be speaking from that passage in Matthew, so it'd be good to keep it open in front of you. And uh, let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would be amongst us this evening, granting us understanding of your word and helping us to know what it means to be a righteous disciple living for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, now that the kingdom of heaven has arrived, does the Old Testament law matter anymore? Uh, Firstly, there are the Ten Commandments we just heard read out from Exodus chapter 20. But beyond that, there are laws about the sacrificial system. There's the Passover and other festivals. In addition, there are laws about worshipping other gods, clean and unclean food, tithes and debts, sexual relations and marriage violations, freeing servants, going to war, detestable practices, the rights of the firstborn. What seed can be planted next to what other seed? And there's even a law about what to do when you come across a bird, a bird's nest by the side of the road. All up, there are 613 Old Testament laws. I think in youth group last week I said 627. I checked, I was wrong, it's 613. And they're about anything and everything, aren't they? But if the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of grace, not law, does the Old Testament law matter? If God forgives us, does it matter how we live? Are we free to live however we like? The question of God's grace versus his moral demands cuts to the heart of what Christianity is all about. And that's what we're looking at today. We're picking up partway through chapter 5 in Matthew's Gospel, but we've, we've uh, just entered into the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we saw Jesus' description of the blessings upon the person in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for God will grant them a righteous status. We're the salt of the earth. We are the light of the earth. And if we're blessed in the kingdom of heaven in all those ways, does it matter then if we keep on sinning? Well, here in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us emphatically, yes, it does. And verses 17 to 20 are very important for helping us understand why. Now, verses 17 to 20, they're they're difficult verses. In fact, Don Carson, who who has written a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says that these verses are amongst the most difficult verses in the whole of the Bible. I think I'm with Don. But let me try to put it simply for you. Jesus teaches us two things and then he goes on to apply it. The first thing he teaches us is that Jesus upholds the law and the prophets. The second thing he teaches us is Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets and then he goes on to apply that teaching to life in the kingdom. So firstly we'll see how Jesus upholds the law and the prophets. There's evidence for this in each of the four verses there. Have a look at verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them but to fulfill them. 
That's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus upholds the law. He doesn't abolish it. It still stands. And in a few minutes' time, we'll unpack what he means by fulfill. Verse 18, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. When will the law be abolished? Well, not until until two specific things have happened. Firstly, the law won't be abolished until this present world passes away. And secondly, the law won't be abolished until everything is accomplished. That, of course, is referring to God's plan of salvation when it is completed. Now, God's plan of salvation centres on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Right now, he has ascended into heaven and intercedes with the Father. We're waiting for him to return, to take us to be with him for eternity. That's when everything will be accomplished. But until heaven and earth pass away and until everything is accomplished... Nothing disappears from the law, not the the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. Literally, not even the dot above an I will disappear from the law until these two things have happened. Jesus upholds the law, it still stands. In verse 19, it starts to get a little trickier. Because Jesus moves on from talking about the law and the prophets to talking about the kingdom. And he says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here Jesus is referring to the commands in the Beatitudes, the commands that he goes on to give in verses 21 to 47, but he also means further on the the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 6 and 7, and then other things that he says throughout the rest of the Gospel. And in fact, do you remember what he says to the disciples right at the end of Matthew 28 when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I have commanded you. Jesus is upholding the law. There's no abolition of the Old Testament here. There's no redundancy, no relaxing. But what he's going to do is take every bit of that Old Testament law and really drive it home. And in doing so, he upholds the law. What then are the demands on the person in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 20. Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Or to put it more bluntly, in verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's hard to imagine just the weight of these words on the crowds as they were listening That is a shock. Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were meticulous. They worked very hard at obeying the law. They worked very hard at instructing others in how to obey the law. 
They were like school prefects, but for a whole nation and a whole religion. They were demanding of themselves and they were demanding of others. And Jesus here raises the stakes even higher. The demand on the person in the kingdom of heaven is greater still, for Jesus demands perfection. See, the kingdom is not lawless. Instead, as we read through what Jesus says on issues such as anger, lust, divorce, integrity, revenge and love, we see Jesus holding up perfection. Do you want entry into God's kingdom? Jesus upholds the law and he demands perfection. That bites a bit, doesn't it? This is why it's good for us when we gather together to confess our sins. I don't know if you know, but there is a growing trend in some Christian circles in which teaching on obedience and submission and moral endeavour and the conviction of our sin and our need to confess our sin, some people say that, that, well, that's unnecessary now because of the love and grace of Jesus. If Jesus loves us so much, why, why does our sin matter? But here in Matthew 5, I hope you can see that how we live really does matter to Jesus who's our Lord. Controlling our anger matters. Sexual purity matters. Our marriages matter. Integrity matters. Love matters. You see, if we so emphasise the glory of God's grace such that we no longer think it necessary to confess our sin, then we're ignoring Matthew 5. Have a listen to how John says it in his first letter. He says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. The call of the gospel is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The life of the disciple is to live in repentance and faith. So Jesus upholds the law. How we live matters. Our sin matters. But that does leave us with a couple of problems. The first one is How on earth do we achieve such perfection? And the second thing is, well, what do we do then with Old Testament law, and particularly quirky things like, should we go shopping on Sunday? Or is it okay to eat bacon and pork and prawns? Can I wear a shirt made of blended fabric? Well, the key word to understanding this, (laughs) I'm tempted to say, it's the F word, in verse 17. Fulfill. You see it there? Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, 
but to fulfill them. Now, already Matthew has shown us many ways in which Jesus does this. As he reveals Jesus' identity to us, he has shown us that Jesus is the Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then in his birth, in his escape to Egypt, in his return to Nazareth, in his baptism, in his ministry, and in his preaching, Matthew shows us time and again how Jesus fulfills all that's said about him in the law and the prophets. Jesus completes the requirements of the Old Testament. And he proves himself to be the true son of God by doing the will of God. And so with Jesus coming and the arrival of the kingdom of heaven comes a massive change. A little bit later in Matthew, we read these words in chapter 11. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, Jesus summarises the whole Old Testament as the law and the prophets. They were effective until John's coming. But from the coming of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Now, in Luke's gospel, it's said even clearer. Jesus says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John... Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And so clearly the arrival of the kingdom of heaven has brought about a significant change. But how does it work? How does it work? Well, over the years there's been many theories about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law and the prophets. Some people argue that the prophets are fulfilled by Jesus in one way as they sort of point towards him and he fulfills those promises, but the laws are fulfilled in another way through his people being obedient. Excuse me. Uh, some like to split the law into three parts and they take the law and they say, well, there's, there's civil laws which relate to the the, the nation of Israel and how they are to act and behave. There are ceremonial laws which are related to the temple and the sacrifices and things like that. And then there are moral laws about ethics and morality that the people are supposed to live by. But the problem with splitting the law into separate parts is that it doesn't allow for what Jesus says in Matthew 5. For if he has fulfilled the civil law and the ceremonial law and the moral law remains, then what do you make of the words, not the smallest letter or the stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished? You can't just take a bit of it and say, that's done. No, it's it's one in all in. So what's the answer? Well, Don Carson puts it like this. He says, we must rid ourselves of conceptions of fulfilment that are too narrow. Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Thus the law and the prophets, far from being abolished, find their valid continuity in terms of their outworking in Jesus. 
Jesus came not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Fulfill it in the sense that he himself was the object to which it pointed. So what Don Carson is saying there is that every single part of the Old Testament has Jesus in mind. Every aspect of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. The Old Testament anticipates a king. It anticipates a servant who will uphold all of God's demands for moral perfection. The Old Testament points forward to a servant. A a servant who would be perfect. A servant who would be the divine sacrifice to pay the punishment that God exacts for our sin. And this Saviour, having justly paid God's punishment, will welcome any person who comes to him in humble surrender. And he will confer on such a person the status of righteousness, of being forgiven. So the Old Testament anticipates the total fulfilment of its demands in the person of Jesus as the king and as a sacrifice with perfect morality. He fulfills every single part of it. And therefore the law remains valid, but only in terms of Jesus' fulfilment of it. He's the one who fulfills the law. There's actually no way that we can fulfill the law in any other way other than what Christ has already done. Of course, we're not saved by law-keeping. Instead, we're saved by God's grace, shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in Romans 8, you can see it on the screen, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. What does all that mean? It means this. Jesus offers us a righteousness that far surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees, of course, had a righteousness of sorts, but they ended up spiralling in hypocrisy. But the gospel of Jesus is glorious because I can come to him in lowliness. I can come to him poor in spirit and have my sins dealt with. And under his rule, I can live for him. To live in the kingdom then is to be obedient to the one who is king. And if the law pointed forward to Jesus and his teaching, then the proper way of living in the kingdom is to be obedient to the fulfilment of the law, that is, to Jesus and his teaching. Uh, This is why he instructs us at the end of the sermon to listen to what he says and put it into practice. Rather than abolishing the Old Testament, Jesus brings it to its completion. 
and teaches us that the mark of loyalty to him is that we are obedient to his teaching. So far we've seen then that Jesus upholds the law and the prophets and the standard is perfection. We've also seen that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets and in this new kingdom we fulfill the law and the prophets by obeying the words of Jesus. Now throughout the rest of the sermon Jesus applies this teaching and as you work your way through the uh, verses 21 to 48 in Matthew 5 there you'll see six examples of fulfillment that demonstrate how the righteousness of his disciples is to surpass that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now you'll be relieved to know tonight we're only going to look at one and we'll do the other five next week. But each of these examples demonstrates the attitudes and behaviour which the king requires of those who submit to his rule and authority. And each one deepens the demands of the Old Testament law by taking us to the heart of the matter, to its fulfilment in Christ. So let's have a look. Have a look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, we're going to leave aside for the moment the notion of killing in a war situation and the implementation of the death penalty. Leaving those things aside, that looks a pretty simple law, doesn't it? Do not murder or you will be judged by God to be a murderer. And for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, righteousness is simple, isn't it? As long as I haven't killed anyone, as long as I haven't caused someone to die, I have obeyed the command. I have, have you? Hopefully you all go, yes, 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 no, I've obeyed that one. But Jesus shows us what the true fulfilment is, how much more it is. Excuse me. Have a look at verse 22. Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see, becomes pretty obvious doesn't it the law not to murder is so much more than just not killing anyone it's actually about personal relationships and I don't know about you but as I read through those words the pride I have of keeping the commandment not to murder it's evaporated completely hasn't it because there are plenty of times when I've been guilty of unrighteous anger Have you ever had hateful feelings towards someone? Have you ever thought to yourself that you'd be happy never to see a particular person ever again? Or perhaps even wish they were dead? Have you engaged in contemptuous behaviour? Have you lost control of your emotions on a Facebook post? 
Have you ever slandered anyone? Been involved in malicious talk? I have. And Jesus says, you're guilty of breaking this law. Therefore, in God's court, you are deserving of the same punishment as a murderer. Ouch. But if our righteousness is to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we need to be perfect in this area. Now, of course, there are times when anger is right and appropriate, especially when it comes to to some matters of sin and injustice. In fact, we see Jesus being angry in some parts of the gospel. He's not forbidding all anger here, but the anger that arises out of personal relationships. And to help make his point, he gives two examples. You see the first one there in verse 23. He says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus is insisting here that it is far more important for you to be reconciled to your Christian brother or sister than to come to church tonight. Coming to church and pretending to have purity and integrity is nothing more than a sham if one of your Christian brothers or sisters has something against you. And Jesus says, forget about coming to church, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. And then worship God. second example is in verse 25. Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. bit tricky to understand but back in the day if you defaulted on a debt you could be thrown into the debtor's prison until you pay your debts the problem with being in the debtor's prison of course is that you can't earn an income to pay off your debts and so you're stuck there unless a generous relative or someone comes and pays the price for you now the debts jesus is speaking of here are personal offenses how can you pay those off what Jesus is stressing here is personal reconciliation. And the onus here is on the one who has done wrong to other people. And Jesus says, go and do what you need to do to be reconciled. Judgment is looming and justice will be done. Therefore, keep clear of malice and offence toward others for even the one who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So can you see in this example how Jesus is upholding the law and teaching us what it really means? Now, our righteousness is to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. God's standard is perfection. 
which can only be achieved through Jesus' fulfilment of the law. What I hope you see here is that just as the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus and it pointed people towards him in their, their need and dependence on Jesus, so the Sermon on the Mount points us to Jesus and to our need and dependence on him too. We need his grace and mercy. Now there are warnings in the Bible about not abusing his grace and mercy A couple of weeks ago, we heard a sermon from 2 Peter on make every effort to add to your knowledge, godliness and self-control and and all those things. We are to work hard at living in obedience to Jesus' teaching. Without the law, we don't have freedom. We have anarchy. Jesus holds up to us the perfect law of God and it is gloriously pure But without grace and mercy, it's totally brutal, isn't it? If that's what fulfilment is. And so the good news of the gospel, I want to finish with this, the good news of the gospel is this. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you with the coming of Jesus, the King comes the new kingdom and father we thank you that jesus is the one who fulfills everything that the old testament was pointing towards that he is the king he is the servant he is the sacrifice he is the one morally perfect who can die in our place to take the punishment we deserve to turn away your anger from us. Father, we thank you that when we put our trust in Jesus, his righteousness is bestowed on us, that we are declared righteous because he died for us. And so we pray that you would help us to trust him. Father, we pray that you would help us to make every effort to be obedient to him and to his teaching, that we might live righteous lives that are light and salt to the world and father we pray that we might do this for the glory and honor of jesus we pray in his name amen